Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Philly, it's another podcast, and this time we get to do our favourite thing, really, don't we, and talk to a poet. Hattie Salmon, a authentic youth writer. Mm-hmm. Um, Hattie is she's a twenty-one-year-old author. She's um, moving in to the poetry scene. She's sort of now beginning to identify as a poet. And, and she's talking to us about a chronology of work from when she was at high school to work that she wrote a couple of days ago. Um, so it's a beautiful conversation and a, a, certainly a, a poet to watch in the next few years. I think so. I think one of the things that I found the most warming about the conversation, aside from all the brilliant work and the discussion around that, was also how enabled she seemed to have been by her secondary school experience and how much she appreciated that. And uh, I mean, we actually haven't heard so much of that from the authors I've spoken to. Yeah, it's it's always humbling to hear that, isn't it? To think that you might have some influence. It's the time of the year where our, our kids are leaving, and so you you're you're getting these messages sometimes it's from a whole class sometimes it's just one student after everybody leaves and no one says thank you and then they slip you a little note and it says like thank you you've changed my life and mm-hmm. you live for those moments you live for those students mm-hmm. who somehow you've you've wiggled your way into their mind and into their heart um and you're sort of connected in that space together so it's it's yeah it is beautiful to hear from a young person who has had a recent positive experience in school that has been motivated by their English teacher. That's right. Good stuff, her English teachers. And actually gives us some good advice too about how to work with poetry with young people. I mm. found that really insightful. It'd be great guidance for us really. So I'm sure many of our people listening will feel the same. And we're kind of trudging along towards the end of the year. Last time we spoke you were getting yourself mentally prepared to start embarking on planning for the next stage i'm embarking the waka the waka is off the shore yeah i'm deep in a unit of work i spent most of the day planning it with a colleague and one of the um associate professors of business at the massey school of business up up here in in albany and we're creating a unit of work together where his post graduate his master's level business students are going to partner with our students on this sort of poetry unit so that his students can broaden their horizons and our students can kind of delve into this poetry unit it's all about exploring and it's language that I use chatting to Hattie like exploring this the sublime you know these Mm -hmm. the the what is it that you experience that gives you goosebumps and make the hairs stand up on the back of your neck and on your arms looking at taking kids to to maybe North Head and and having these blackout experiences where they can't see and they write about being in darkness or taking them to Murawai Beach on the West Coast on a rainy day and making a kite and flying it. I don't know, at the moment we've just got so many ideas, but we're looking at a semesterized course which is focused on creating poetry, which is exploring not only your place in space, but your relationship to that feeling of of the sublime. Um, so it's really it's really romance poetry, isn't it? it is, How but, wonderful, oh, man! But it's high stakes. Like when when Doctor Bathurst uh, left today after this massive planning session, he, both he and I were just like, "I'm scared." I was like, "I'm scared." I 
I'm I'm into project-based learning and I'll come up with harebrained ideas, but I usually run with them by myself. And now we're in partnership. Like we have got to get this right because we've got assessments leveraging off this. He's yes. had to write like a new course and kind of get yeah. that through. But one of the things that the, the project-based approach offers is a sort of jeopardy to students like the stuff is real mm. um and i've got i've got a, a parallel experience actually right now my uh, a year 10 group i'm working with have been doing a course we call the newsroom and they've been they've been characterized they've been styled as investigative journalists and mm. we've done the whole investigation into what does that mean and what is the ethic framework that you work to and what kind of practices do you have to demonstrate as it, it's more of that kind of Dorothy Heathcote stuff actually almost being inside the drama with them and taking on roles together and it's been really successful and and they've been producing these investigative journalism pieces which they have to present live to a live stream so everyone and their families and out there in the community are listening to them I just said you know reach high start by approaching the ultimate person you'd like to speak to and then sort of come and then step Back. down from there but of course they reached high so we've got interviews with Jacinda Ardern we've got interviews My with professional goodness. footballers from Denmark and like because of course they're they're young schoolboys and so when a young schoolboy says I'm an investigative journalist and I'm doing a project on this everyone says yes don't they it's really taken a life of its own but the bit I'm trying to relate to what you're saying and is those live streams are live and suddenly my classroom is, is a live production studio and I wouldn't call it stress, but there's a lot. You have to get it right. You have to get it right. The best teaching that I have ever done is where you have a mad idea, yeah. but you know your curriculum and you understand yeah. the achievement standards. And it's one of those 4am ideas where you mm. just think, oh my God, I'm yeah. probably going to do this. And then you yeah. find yourself in the middle of it and you're like, oh, well, Dr. Bathurst and I were just sort of standing there being like, oh, all right, here we go. Here we go. We're taking our students up there. We've got yeah. Glenn Colhoun invested in it. We've got, we had a meeting with Welby Ings today to put it through like the Welby filter. And he always just has gems and had these mm. provocations. So we improved it. So we've pulled in all of these, like you say, well, aim high. It's like, well, I'll email them and see if they want to be involved. And so now people want to be involved we're putting it together. It's it's so high stakes. We have to get it right, but it ha it has to be brilliant. Yeah, you know, because if it's not, it's a shambles. I guess the other thing, though, this is the bit I don't factor in when I get freaked out by the ideas that I come up with, is that the boys take ownership or students take ownership. And a conversation I had with a with one student the other day probably characterizes this beautifully for me, and that is that he produced a piece of work which was already going to achieve the highest grade available and yet there was a change that would, could have made it better so I thought oh god I need to be honest with this lad he's worked super hard it's it's already done but I have worked in radio there are some improvements available to this piece so I thought oh, I'll suggest these things but I'll first tell him it's not going to have any effect on the grade and for some of these gents you know the grades kind of drive their choices but the beautiful thing was that I said, made the gesture first. The work is already at that top level, but here's some advice. It's your choice as to whether you act on it. And then not only did he go home, make all of the changes, improve the work and come back just because he wanted to be proud of what he'd produced, but he had that conversation with his family. He said, I'm not doing this for grades, mum. And she got in touch and just said, that's so wonderful that he's now invested in this work to the extent that it doesn't matter anymore. And I, I think that was great. 
And that's because these things take on their own life, don't they? Yeah. And that's that's when project-based learning works. That's when when the assessment is is woven into, it's part of the fabric yeah. of this unit of work. And I think our achievement standards are are good enough, they're high quality enough, and they're assessing really good skills that you can make them a part of something profound, you know. But it's risk, it's just big risk. Yeah, it's big risk, but it's also about being a little bit creative and a bit mm. mischievous and remembering that the achievement standard itself is not the goal. I can't wait to hear more about what you're developing. It sounds spectacular. The 30th at the of November, that's the day. That's when we'll sit down and talk about parameters, timelines, yeah. assessments, yeah. assessment descriptions. But at the moment, yeah, it's immersive and experience and everyone's life is going to change i think when this goes ahead and let's say it is successful i think it has to be i think it's also important that we remind ourselves i'll remind you actually because i will remember that it took all that period of rumination Mm. it took the deep breath before the imaginative process it took the shared imagining it took a whole lot of steps steps that are invisible to everyone else before something like that comes to fruition totally. it doesn't just spontaneously occur even though to the students it may feel like it's just spontaneously occurring you know what I mean there's a lot mm. that goes on there tens of hours of processing if our schools are producing Hattie Salmons, then something's going okay. Something is going okay. Hopefully a Hattie Salmon falls out of it all. Well, let's have a listen to what she had to say in her three beautiful poems. Enjoy. Uh, we're super stoked today to have Hattie Salmon yarn with us about her work and how that has evolved over the years from being a student at Western Springs up here in Tāmaki Makaurau um, to work that's been published to recent work which is still works in progress. So thank you so much for joining us Hattie. No problem. Hi guys. I'm always interested in in people who start off as writers quite young. If there's a, a transition between being a person who writes poetry to a person who could call themselves a poet. Have you gone through any kind of transition like that, like in terms of your sort of self-identity as a writer? Oh, I don't know. I only really figured out I wanted to write poetry as sort of like a focus out of all the literary forms this year because it just was all I was writing. And like before then I wrote little bits, but I was mostly writing fiction. Yeah, I don't I I call myself a poet. I don't know why. I just do. I think, yeah, as soon as I started writing it regularly. Right. So it might be the regularity of writing. I mean, we've we've read some of your poetry, so I don't think there's any doubt that you're a poet. It's beautiful and <laughs> arresting. Thank and you. so definitely, you know, quality, quantity, frequency. It's just interesting to see how it goes internally, actually. Have you mm. written poetry always? Um. Yeah, I have, ever since I was a little girl. Um, and definitely for a long time took the form of like songwriting which I mean I classify that as poetry as well um but yeah I have always written it we've got three poems haven't we that we would be really keen to have you read and then maybe talk a little bit about and they're kind of chronological so we were wondering if we could hear them chronologically and you could describe yeah. a little bit about how they came about where they went and then we can respond as teachers do with our teacher questions and then just see how things change over time. So I'll start with the one I wrote from a prompt in high school. 
This poem's called People Watching. Teal skirt against the calves, bell top against the wrists, hair dude, teeth out smile, didn't wear red lipstick, cause what if there's a kiss? Brilliant, bright, quite literally unafraid of anything yet. Hole, wearing the plum slip, Wearing the flyaways against the head done with a toothbrush. Wearing the eyebrows right on the curve. Wearing the tuck. Necklace, a chunky tambourine. Getting off the shift. Getting on the bus. Getting out the joint. Getting mild high in bed. Getting invested in the HBO series. Getting pissed at neighbours. Getting it on through thin walls. Left out on the deck with the other rockers. Left out on the deck with replica dad's mate. Left out on the deck talking about a degree done three years of and somehow not getting a word in. Having asked, turning a hardened faced windward, eyes molasses, mothy, a baby tight against a chest that won't stop coughing, except the baby's plastic and homelessness is a huge sadness. The boy that lingered in the womb, that spills the jug of tui on the white shirt, riot breasts, spread like swollen ankles, that one night will turn your best friend's lights out, without permission. Sometimes you love it like a body, and other times it frightens you to puke. Doesn't it irk you, this potty city? Where were you when you made those observations? Um, So there's a few of them that came about after I wrote it, when I revisited it um, this year. But the most of them, um, we were told to just go sit somewhere and look at the people. Um, So I was on Queen Street, probably at Glasson's or like H&M, I don't know, somewhere. And I was just watching people go by. You said this was while you were at high school? Yeah, I think this was year 13, year, year 12 or year 13. Quite impressed with your teacher's idea, I have mm. to say. What a yeah. good prompt, don't you think? It's actually one that they then, my um, my writing convener at the IML used again last year. So I've done that prompt twice and both times it's had really cool results. It's um, one of the privileges of having gone to a kura that's so close to the city. Like that's a mm. quick bus trip into town, eh? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not to say you can't make stunning observations anywhere, you know, but to be able to take a short trip into the middle of a big city Mm -hmm. where there are all of these sort of experiences that are confronting and humbling and it gives you that sort of... Characters on characters. Yeah, Mm, yeah, pushes you right up against other people Mm -hmm. and makes you challenge your perception of yourself and um, has obviously led to some really beautiful, beautiful poetry there. There's some really interesting rhythms in it, like when you go with the line, getting off the shift, getting on the bus, getting out the joint, getting mild high in bed, getting invested in the HBO series, getting pissed at neighbours, getting it on through thin walls, (laughs) that last getting it on, the kind of shift in the meaning of getting is just Mm. such a cool progression. How conscious was that when you wrote it? Probably what usually happens when I do wordplay is I'll accidentally do something and then I'll realize what I've done and so this was in your year 13 year it was a I guess a a, a project that your teacher set go into Mm -hmm. town sit down take observations Mm -hmm. like this is a small piece so I'm thinking like and this is where this is helpful for us to kind of contextualize 
this in our own experiences and understanding of achievement standards and so on. Like this is a beautiful activity in the lead up to writing portfolio. I don't even think it, I think it was like an extra thing at the start of the year from, from memory. It was like a thing to get things going because yeah, I, I just found it discarded in sort of like a file on my computer. Yeah. I don't think it was used for anything. I think I just really liked my teacher and I wanted to please her. So I I wrote something of the extra homework. (laughs) I think it's interesting. We've talked to a number of authors and quite a few of them talk of being quite disappointed with their experience in the English classroom, feeling as if Mm. the classroom's been quite restrictive and not necessarily that enabling of them as authors. So at 21 now, and um, having obviously therefore been in school in the last five years, the fact that there's some really interesting work coming out of the time that you're at school. What, what do you think your te- teacher was doing well there? Um, I, had a, I had a long string of what I thought was really awesome English teachers. It's a good department there at Western Springs. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. I will swear by it. But um, yeah, I think always they just seemed to say, if you're interested then I'll help you and like just come like show me your poetry show me your writing I always want to read it um and so I felt like I had like a even if the rest of the class didn't want to hear my poetry or um didn't want to write their own poetry sort of like I felt heard by my English teachers at Springs like they really um yeah made me feel like they cared about my writing which was really cool in the later stages of the poem it kind of does that Volta thing, doesn't it? Where it shifts from being observational to something darker and still unspecified, but that one mm. night will turn your best friend's lights out without permission. Mm. Just it's mm-hmm. fairly chilling in my reception of it. What drove that in the writing of it? Was that you as a year 13 student or is that a more recent revision? That was me as year 13, um, having a bear with someone who um I didn't like and um kind of thinking this is kind of horrifyingly poetic because like this is just one of those things where you just have to sit with someone who you really don't want to be sitting with (laughs) but I I it it yeah it used to sound very different the line but I think like when I rewrote it and came back to it reflecting on it yeah I could write about it more poetically if that makes sense it's so nice to hear about poetry is something that is alive you know that once you write it it's not necessarily complete that you write it at a stage in your life and you knew what you knew then and you had the language skills that you did at that time but it sits Mm -hmm. with you and years go by like I must look through that again and kind of tinker with that through these new lenses and experiences and improve it and evolve it whilst maintaining its integrity and spirit do you revisit much of your poetry in that way? Yeah, I, I'm i a big editor. It's all in the edits for me. I'll write something and it'll be terrible. So it's all in the edits. Um, I've got this one poem that I've been editing for probably seven years. Um, wow. And it's become this like huge thing about young love and it's kind of changed. And then I've come back, but I've kept it all. The writing stays the same. I've just add to it so it's it's like my favorite thing it's never going anywhere but it's like it is I love revisiting stuff and especially revisiting stuff and going that was so bad I'm so much better now can we move to the next poem our old house in Beach Haven is for sale the first time I actually washed behind my ears I understood the phrase 
don't forget to wash behind your ears. Just like how the first year I was old enough to understand what the hell was going on at Christmas time, I understood the phrase, you can't choose your family. The first time I saw my little brother, I understood what they meant by love at first sight. Blonde, curly creature with one webbed finger, growing up trumpet playing. The first time I taught him to spell, I understood why I was put on the planet. The first time I left home, I understood the phrase homesickness, because in my tummy I felt the drop of the fear fall, because in my chest an oaf sat on my lungs like quitting the sig, because the only image I could play up there was us sailing out, waving at grandma and grandpa as we crossed Little Shoal Bay, like how the first time I wasn't able to visit, I understood the phrase, take a rain check, because it sure felt like rain. There's such a brilliant building of tension because of the repeat of the logic of that, you know, the first time I learnt, the first time I learnt. Mm -hmm. And then you offered the title, Our Old House in Beach Haven is for Sale, and so you mm -hmm. so you kind of know what's coming. Yeah, I, it was... I was just on Trade Me one night and my old our old house that we used to live in was like on the property thing. It was so weird, the weirdest coincidence, and it just made me really sad. Yeah. I remember I saw my I saw someone else driving my first vehicle one time and I was stricken mm. with grief. Isn't that funny? Mm. Yeah, we get attached. It's yeah. not yours. That's mine. Yeah. Yeah. That's my poppy, which is mm. what I called it, of course. <laughs> We have to ask. Thank you, Philly. Yeah. What's the deal with the lack of punctuation, capitalization, <laughs> and grammatical structures? We're, we're children of boomers. This mm -hmm. is entrenched in our psyche. <laughs> Additionally, within particularly the writing portfolio standards, which are the mm -hmm. only um, internal achievement standards that offer writing UE credits and therefore there's a level mm -hmm. of scrutiny in terms of those patterns that is required. What is the reason behind dropping that out? What do you achieve by, God, that sounds like a really, um, that could sound really aggressive, but I don't mean it in that way. Mm -hmm. What do you achieve, Hattie? What are you trying to achieve <laughs> by not using a full stop? With the capitalization, I started doing it a wee while ago, but when I write about grief or um, loss, um, I write without capital letters. I don't know why I made the I's capital in this poem. They should be lowercase, but... Um, There's an edit for you? Yeah. <laughs> Another one. Um, yeah, when I've, I've started writing about poems um, that are about loss and grief and I use lowercase letters because I feel like it looks... I don't know. It looks how it feels more. For Philly and I, because, you know, we're presented with these beautiful pieces of writing so often... And there are these sort of deliberate choices made around punctuation and, and structure and rules broken in terms of grammar. Mm -hmm. We're placed in that position where we have to formulate a reason in order to mm -hmm. give it credit, if that makes sense. And it's so, it's a yeah. quite an artificial way to respond, respond to a piece of writing. So I think it's actually very helpful to us to hear things mm -hmm. like it's written how it feels mm -hmm. isn't it because i mean we essentially can start justifying our mm -hmm. appreciation of our students work on that basis too yeah i yeah. remember recently we spoke to kadra muhammad and she read a couple of beautiful pieces and we asked the same question mm -hmm. like what's up with the what's up with the baby eyes and her response was quite similar that mm -hmm. it, it looks better 
already you're sort of playing with the with the physical shape of that poem so then to be mm. putting capitalization and sort of interferes with the with the wider you know with with the natural kind of flow and rhythm of that visual shape that yeah. you're presented with let's fast forward to mm-hmm. fairly present day Hattie piece mm-hmm. of writing that's a bit two of two days whip. ago two Hattie. days ago <laughs> oh this is fresh out of yeah. the womb Awesome. It is, so it will change by the time it is available for streaming wherever. This is called At the Top of the Driveway is Sky. The start of summer comes on in a rash up my neck. Someone says they can tell it's summer when they buy beer at dusk and the bottoms of their feet are hot on the pavement outside the supermarket. Someone says it's when the wind gets hot. Someone says, my lion's mane is in knots of salt and it will be white by February. Summer is a rash. It overfeeds me, makes me thirsty for something I can never have, for something that leaves blisters, for daylight to walk along a mototapu mudflat in between brothers who become more like mates the older we get. I was born to eat sun, left in a dinghy off some shoreline, head torch, shandy, sundress woman. That's when I flare, glint, pearl, lightly boozed on a beach, reading Philip Roth like a gnarly old bitch. Someone says, which part do you like best about the sky? And I say apricot. What I should have said, my parents planted my placenta under a puhutakawa who barely grew, who wilted, whined, self-destructed, who at ten only came up to my shins. Still, my dad did all he could, sometimes making the two-hour drive up north just to give it some water. At ten, I thought, he should just let that thing die, for Christ's sake, pathetic and clinging on the bank. But he didn't. You can't escape being a daughter, and you can't escape being a daughter's dad, which docks you to seasickness, curfews, poems about blowjobs, one day leaving her in a dinghy off some shoreline to find her own way back. Someone says, which part do you like best about the sky? What I should have said, I like the burning shard of dirt orange, the lip by the sun, because I have stopped dying now, no longer clinging to that bank. I was soft grey blue. I was someone who died until summer came on like a rash, and I got thirsty, and I quit my whining. I played loud, fast, hard. I read things written by men so I could write them better. I pulled in the main sheet, pulled at the knots, tightened the ropes till they were a part of me. I acquired a taste for things far out of my reach, a taste that leaves me broken on desert road, half awake, half asleep, but wholly human. This is the rash of summer that brings me back to life, the joy in my life, just a love for some untenable season, passed down to me by my dad. Someone says, Ngataya planting rewa rewa up the sides of the hill. I will take my son to see that rewa rewa grow. What do you do next? If this is a piece of work in progress, what happens now? So first thing I do is send it to my dad, <laughs> who's um, my harshest critic, but who didn't critique this one very much, probably because it's about him. Um, yes, how could he? Yeah. <laughs> and then he'll say, don't put in that because you've got nautical themes throughout and then some things are not nautical. So look at those and then I'll look at those and then Mm. I'll take those out. And then I sort of just slowly make sure every word wants to be there. While I was reading it, that last stanza, um, the big long one, that one needs to be culled. I'm liking in terms of the dynamics of it, how you, 
shift from things that are really profound, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, being a daughter, being a parent and having a son, all those things shifting in it, inside it. But then there's these other moments which are just the sort of lighthearted colloquialisms of summer and how Mm -hmm. they kind of intertwine with each other, which I feel is very much what seems to happen in a lot of New Zealand poetry is that we shift from gravitas to good-natured satirical humour within the same Mm. text. And and I see that happening here. Do do you see that happening here? Am I seeing that? Am I making that up? No, yeah, that's definitely one of my favourite things that other people do in poetry. And so, yeah, I think I, I think I love the like being really melodramatic and then you're just on your couch, like eating a pizza and like yeah. having the contrast of that. It's very like how we are in mm-hmm. our heads. We're like that. We're melodramatic. And we also get easily distracted, don't we? And there's mm-hmm. moments of that here. Your family, your beautiful family runs through these pieces Can you talk to us a little bit about that? My older brother and my younger brother are also huge inspirations. Like they always, especially my younger brother, are in all my writing. I think it's because they're both artists as well in their own places. Like um, Theo, my older brother's in a band and then my younger brother does sort of like trumpet playing and everything as well. So I think they're just sort of like figures to me. And they're both two very polar opposite types of people. I don't know if it is, but it it feels rare to me that people can talk about their family with that much adoration. And that's not to say that I don't have equal amounts of mm-hmm. love for my own family. But and you see that in your poem, poems, like the 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 growing friendship mm-hmm. between your brothers and the way that you see them as figures and just the language that you're using to describe the people in your family and your relationships with them. It's so special. It's so touching. I read a lot of books and a lot of films are about brother and brother relationships or, you know, sisters. And I want more brothers and sisters because it's such a strange, like funny <laughs> relationships that has strange, funny moments and Greta and Valden, which is by Rebecca K. Riley. It just came out. When I read that, I was like, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. At the same time, I also like the line, I re- read things written by men so I could write them better. <laughs> I thought there's just that, yeah. mm, that that kind of feminist throwback, I suppose, but really cool in the in, in the context of what's being said here. What you're bringing to this corridor um, is a perspective of of language and literature and poetry as a young person, mm-hmm. as a youth. And that's so wonderful for us to hear a perspective on poetry that's so fresh. You're you're only newly out of school. You could have been one of our learners. You know, what are we what do we do in the classroom to create these experiences that engage Mm-hmm. you and your mates you know that that is in our hearts more than anything is creating those educational experiences where young people are are carried away and can't do anything like within the context of poetry but use figurative language and play with language and drop out the punctuation and put it back in there and be playful to be able to create something that's representative of the of the sublime mm-hmm. within us um, all of those huge big feelings that are so challenging to articulate like how do we take students to that place 
so that they're able to to write well and feel confident writing. Yeah. It's such a massive question, you know. It's the million dollar question, but it's it's mm. what we're here to do. What engages me the most is when I read a writer that's like me, um, whether that's like that they're a woman or that they're I don't know going through the same stuff as me. Like that is, I think the most crucially important way to get someone to be like, I can, this would, this would help if I did this, if I wrote this, if I like, I remember when I read Virginia Woolf for the first time and I was like, that's me. That's, that's how I feel. Um, That's what I I can do that. And then I I think that setting texts that are relevant in strange ways, like I love, I love the old poets but I didn't get them until about two years ago, like halfway through my first year of university. And so reading T.S. Eliot in high school was cool because I knew that it was um, intellectual, but I didn't get it. And so, yeah, I think that having reading, for always for me, reading and writing, help, reading helps me write. And so reading texts that are about things that high schoolers want to read about I think will just help. It helped me. You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.